Hi, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Dr. Joseph J. Ellis, the author of The Cause The American Revolution and Its Discontents, 1773 to 1783. He's one of the most well-known historians of the early Republic, writing the landmark 2002 Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Founding Brothers. He also taught for many years at many places. Mount Holyoke is one of them. Thanks so much for being here, Dr. Ellis. It is my pleasure. Before we start our interview, I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. The term, the American Revolution, is so embedded in today's discourse that we instantly know that it means the Declaration of Independence and then the war that scurried away the British occupiers. But if you were alive when that process was underway, Dr. Ellis points out that you would have heard the term, the cause, as he describes, the cause was a blend of forces, political, social, military. Was it top-down or bottom-up? And it certainly meant different things if you were white or black or Native American. Dr. Ellis, what does it say about the American penchant for myth-making that we now call the cause a revolution? And who was the first to use the term revolution? It got used during the war, sometimes by Adams, uh, uh, but that the term American Revolution doesn't come into common usage until just before the French Revolution in order to make a comparison between the two national traumas. Um, The British called it the American Rebellion. the colonists begin to call it in 1775 the common cause, which refers to the unity among the different colonies to support Massachusetts when it's being occupied by the British Army and, um, and uh, in the wake of the Tea Party. Um, and it gets shortened to the cause pretty quickly uh, as a way of describing it's a kind of, the cause is a verbal canopy. As you were saying, Evan, that different groups from different parts of the American colonies, different sections, different interest groups can gather. They don't agree on what they're for. They agree on what they're against. They're against British tyranny. They are against the militarization of the constitutional conflict by Great Britain in the wake of the coercive acts and then the occupation of Massachusetts and especially Boston. So they're coming together to defend a fellow sister colony and, um, and the, the common cause becomes the cause as that conflict proceeds. And um, uh, in my judgment, the British had ample opportunity to avoid making what I regard as the biggest mistake in the history of British statecraft. Um, History could have moved in a fundamentally different direction and the United States of America could have become the first uh, former colony to become part of the British Commonwealth, which is what's gonna happen later on to Canada and Australia and New Zealand. 
but that doesn't happen. And, um, and why it doesn't happen is, uh, is something I talk about, but that um, uh, if modern readers, I, well, here's the way I put it. I think now Americans can understand the British position and the British dilemma more clearly than we might have. Yeah, I have were- a question of I have a question about that. So let me let, let me get there. But I thought that was a great point that you made that suddenly we're like the British. Um, before we get into the story itself, why was the sentiment of George Washington that whoever told the story of what happened between 1773 and 1783, as you say, was bound to tell fiction? I guess it reminds me of the old saying, which is the least trustworthy thing in the world is someone's memory. <laughs> Um, he says that at the end of the war uh, in a letter to uh, Nathaniel Green it says basically you know if anybody writes a true history of this they'll be accused of writing fiction because it's so accidental and providential and he calls it a standing miracle now I don't know what a sitting miracle or a lying miracle would look like but that um, the specific reference that he's referring to at the moment is um, the Battle of Yorktown, which really is a series of accidents and coincidences. Um, but the larger pattern is how could this group of amateurs and the other amateurs, professional soldiers, I mean, uh, um, defeat the largest uh, and most powerful, well, not the most powerful army and navy in the world. I mean, Evan, one of the ways that you could put it is, I'll ask you this question. How many wars did Great Britain lose between 1750 and 1950? You know, I, now lose off the top really of my old. head, off the top of my head, I might say, I mean, other than, I guess, the War of 1812. That's a draw. That's a draw. So, you know, and I'm going to go pretty the, close to the word none. One. One this one, right? Be this one, yeah. And they would say they didn't lose it. They would say they simply cut their losses and um, got out of town, got out of dodge. (laughs) Right, got out of dodge. And um, but um, in that sense, it does seem a miracle until you understand the character of the war um, and realize that uh, the American experience in Vietnam and perhaps now in the Middle East prepares us to understand. Well, think of it this way. A newly arrived world power steps onto the stage for the first time, having defeated France and acquired this huge empire in North America. It is economically and militarily supreme. It believes in that supremacy. It believes it cannot be defeated. And it steps into a quagmire, which turns out to be an unwinnable war. Now that sounds pretty familiar to me, and um, the hot, the the the, the self and that it believes George III believes if he doesn't contest the American attempt at independence, it will be the first domino to fall in falling dominoes. Then Canada will go. Then Jamaica will go. Then Malta will go. Then then India will go. And so he thinks, George III thinks that if he doesn't take the action that he does, which again turns out to be the most, the biggest mistake in British statecraft, that um, 
he will be famous for having lost the entire British Empire. And that too has a familiar rank. One of the things that um, I think is just fascinating about the book is that um, when you hear people talk about the colonies um, before the revolution itself, before the cause itself, there's a, a there's a, a sentiment and there's a, you know, it's based in some fact that these colonies saw themselves as individual states that had bound together for mm. their, uh, for the mutual defense. Did the British though, and I got this sense a little bit, is that the British had lumped them together as one earlier on than the colonies themselves did. That, you're right. I hadn't thought about that, but it's true. You're right. The British inherit this huge empire. I mean, it's the, the name of the game is don't win too big. Um, they've acquired this huge area, a third of the continent, and they haven't really governed it before. They've allowed it to go in, you know, what's Burke's phrase, benign neglect. And so they treat it as a single entity. We need to consolidate our control over these colonies in a way that we haven't. They perceive this as their responsibility as a newly arrived empire. The Americans perceived it as a changing in the rules of the game in a way that is attempting to enslave them. Now, the British would say, we're not trying to enslave you. We're trying to put you under British rule in a way that makes you in second-class British citizens, namely colonists. That's all, uh, which is what you are. But they don't think of themselves as a single unit, the colonists don't, until the British start talking about them that way. Um, <laughs> uh, and, they're in, and, I, and I will say, too, that the first sentence of the most famous speech in American history is historically incorrect. Abraham Lincoln at Gettysburg says, four score and seven years ago, 1776, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. No, they didn't. They brought forth a union of sovereign states provisionally united to come together under the banner of the cause to win the war which they successfully did, and then go their separate ways as, at best, a loosely tied together confederation. The model that exists at the end of the war isn't an American nation. It is a confederation. It looks very much like what the Confederate States of America I asked for in 1861. Uh, I, you don't often hear people fact-checking the big Abe, so uh, it's good to have someone aboard who's willing to do that. <laughs> well, you know, the Big Abe had to say what he said in 1863 because the whole rationale for his policy in the war is that he's defending a union that pre-existed and that the states don't have the legitimate right to preserve slavery. Um, he's, he's actually only contesting the right to extend slavery into the territories, but that the whole union position is the founders have created a, a United States that is a nation. And, um, and while Washington wanted that, and so did Hamilton, and so did Franklin, and so did Adams, they were a minority at the end of the war. The vast majority of citizens uh, can't think nationally. They need to recover the ordinary experience of Americans, the ordinary American was born, lived out his or her life, and died within a three-hour horse ride. 
I know it's hard for some of my my former students to have remember to know this. They didn't have cell phones, and um, and so our distance still made a huge difference. And people could not uh, think about a government that's far removed from them physically as a government that that they could re regard as their government. Um, Philadelphia and New York, in some ways, were just as far away as London, as far as they were. Right, concerned. may as well be right. What's the difference? May as well, been. so they, they didn't even have rotary phones either. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> nor telephones, nor telegram, <laughs> or nothing. Right. Yeah. Um, you, uh, before, we, and I do want to get into more of the book, but but you've written many books on what would be called the cause, and many people uh, have. So why do you find it useful for both yourself and for the public to find new ways to tell? this story. Um, you've written Founding Brothers, The Quartet, American Creation, Revolutionary Summer, um, and now The Cause. How do all these angles help and why do you keep coming back for more? People ask me that question. <laughs> right. um, why do you do dead white males and what's so interesting about them? And um, I'm, I'm a person who at a certain stage in his evolution as a historian, back about 30 years ago, said, I want to think about the late 18th century as a single unit. The profession tends to divvy up the early American past into more discrete units, pre-colonial, pre colonial, early revolution, revolution, post-revolution, early republic. All these are different fields of study. And I said, there should be a single field called the founding. And I want to write a history of the founding. And I didn't know what I was doing when I started. So I wrote biographies of Washington or Adams and Jefferson. And in fact, the current book, The Cause, should have been the first chapter. Okay, this is the, this is the first chapter in the story of the creation of the American nation state and the, and the, um, the founding of America. I happen to believe that the founding, well, I'll put it this way. When they say, why you do it? And I say, I give him my, um, what's the name of that bank robber who always kept getting caught? Uh, uh, I don't know the bank robber. Willie, super Willie Sutton. Willie I was going to say Jesse James, but who knows? But Willie, Sutton's, Willie Sutton was a bank robber who kept getting caught, thrown in jail. And after, as soon as he's out, he goes and robs another bank and they catch him again and then they, get, and they throw him in jail. And they say, Willie, why do you keep robbing banks? And then, Joe, why do you keep going back to the late 18th century? Willie said, because that's where they keep the money. And um, in American history, the founding is when they keep the ideas and the institutions that we continue to live under. It is the big bang in the history of the American political universe. It changes the tectonic plates of Western political thought. No longer is monarchy that is the framework for the future. It's the republic, or what will come to be called democracy. And Tocqueville will say it. America is the crystal ball for the rest of the world, especially Europe. So that I'm going back to the moment when the United States, as the first nation-sized republic in world history, comes into existence. The first society to say that there shall be no religious establishment goes into existence the first society to say that sovereignty can be divided. That's what we call federalism. So that all these things happen at the beginning. And um, there are, in the midst of these triumphs, two enormous tragedies. 
and I don't want to put them on the back burner. I want to feature them. We failed to put slavery on the road to extinction. We failed to reach a just accommodation with the Native American population. Are those tragedies Greek tragedies or Shakespearean tragedies? That is, if they're Greek tragedies, they're embedded. No amount of leadership could have changed the historical outcome. If they're Greek tragedies, then they were, it could have gone the other way. Um, and at the end of the book, this question gets sort of posed in, the, in, a, in, a, in a way, but I need to write another book. <laughs> we already got, we got 13 on the way here, I guess. I right? know, well, yeah, it's, I know. But you hurt my feelings when you said the cause. You're always writing about the cause. No, no. this is the only time I've ever written about something called the cause. Uh, later on, it's called the Constitutional Convention or the Washington Administration or that kind of, this is where it starts though. This is where the, the, the bomb starts to go off, if you will. The trigger hits the, uh, you hit the trigger and the gun goes off. And um, so, uh, and I don't think if I had written the history of the founding chronologically from the start, I wouldn't have been able to write what I wrote this time because in order to do the preceding volumes, I've had to read all of the Washington papers, all of the Adams papers, all of the Hamilton papers, all most of the Franklin papers, most of the Madison papers, most of the Marshall papers, and the committees of correspondence, uh, the, uh, the, all the correspondence among members of the Continental Congress, etc. So that I was loaded in a way, information-wise, in a way that I would not have been if I did this 30 years ago when I was just starting. So like a new child, every author thinks his most recent book is his best thing. Um, but what do I know? I mean, you, you know, I, you know, I'm a myopic viewer of this thing. And so I'm, I'm throwing it out there and letting the public and the readers decide for themselves. Well, I'm certainly sorry that I hurt your feelings, but maybe, uh, maybe this will feel, uh, uh, maybe this will make you feel better. I still remember where I was in the deck that I was sitting on when I read Founding Brothers. So uh, there you go. That well, make up I, for it? I, I, yeah, that's, that's more than more sympathy than I can deserve a bit. Founding Brothers was a little uh, a book about the 19, uh, 1790s and the founders then. And, um, and in some ways I caught, I caught my rhythm there. Uh, every year I reread Gatsby for rhythm. I read um, a, a mischievous little classic by uh, Lytton Strachey called Eminent Victorians for style like your batting donuts sort of yeah yeah it's like the first line of eminent victorians is one of the great first lines of any biography it's a collective biography of the victorians it is the history of the victorian era can never be known we know can never be written we know too much about it that's um, in this book i think you put that in this book i put it in because yeah, I, I love that i love it um one of the fascinating points your book makes is that Franklin assumes, Ben Franklin assumes that eventually the center of power is going to sort of drift here to the United yeah. States, to what is now the United States, as opposed to being in Britain, because the demographics were just moving in right. the that American direction. population was doubling every 20 to 25 years, while the British population was growing much more slowly. And so Franklin's vision, it's something he writes long before the revolution in 1751, 
called Observations on the Increase of Mankind. It's a sort of a demographic explanation of how history is going to proceed. And it's really a vision of the British Commonwealth um, long before that term comes into existence, but that power will, will move from Great Britain to somewhere on the Susquehanna River, he thinks, you know? And, uh, and he's, he's got his tongue in his cheek when he's writing this thing, of course, but um, what he's saying is what scares the living de Jabers out of the British ministry from that, it says, it is inevitable that these colonies are going to declare their independence. And even in 75, early 76, most of the colonists don't want to be independent. They want to stay in the British Empire. They, they, they trust the British Empire. So that uh, they're really almost forced to do what the, the British policy forces them to do exactly what the British policy is fearsome that they're going to do. But Franklin at the start is suggesting that it is inevitable that this continent is eventually going to rule over this island. What this was another, um, uh, as the parent of a new child, I can only imagine what this is like, but you said um, there were lots of acts. There was pushing and pulling like with a teenager. Um, mm. that, that, and you kind of go back on yourself and go, maybe I was a little bit misguided in how I handled that discipline, right? Um, right. There was lots of whipping up of public opinion. And one thing you say is that we have to move up and down the social scale mm. to fully understand why all that pushing and pulling led to the sort of big moment in 1776. All right, yeah, good. As a card-carrying historian, I can tell you that there's an argument among historians that you can develop, you can call them Whigs, Neo-Whigs, Imperial School, Progressive School. So you got all these names, but you don't need to know about that. Graduate students need to know about that, but you don't need to know about that. What you need to know is that historians on this subject tend to fall into one of two groups. Those that perceive the coming of the American Revolution is driven from the up-down, from prominent American writers and activists, Sam Adams, John Adams, James Otis, Thomas Jefferson. These are the people that create the language that leads to this thing called the American Revolution or the cause. Then there are other historians who claim that the real power is at the ground level. It is ordinary people who are the real implementers of the values of the cause at the ground level, and that that's what we need to notice. Ellis says, this is like trying to choose between the words and the music of a song, okay? You can't have one without the other. They're together and their interaction is what makes this movement succeed. And we can talk a little bit more about why this works at the ground level, because that's harder for people to fully understand. That Suppose you're living in New Jersey. Do you live in New Jersey? No, you don't live in New I Jersey. I don't, but I've been to New Jersey many, 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 many times. Right, you live in New Jersey in 1775, and a woman is going to come to your door saying, hello, I'm representing the Committee on uh, Security and uh, and that." Uh, you, I would like you to sign this document saying you're not going to you're not going to use British imports. Um, and uh, later she's going to come by a year later, and she's going to say we need you to sign this this list saying that you support American independence. Now, the, suppose 
the first time she comes to your door and like there are about 7,000 of these committees throughout the, the United States at the time, the American colonies. Ordinary people, your neighbors, women as often as men. And suppose you say, I'm sorry, I can't sign. She'll say, it's okay, think about it. I'll come back next week. She comes back next week and you say, I'm sorry, I really just want to remain neutral during this thing. She says, I'm sorry, you can't do that. And because of your reluctance and resistance, I'm going to have to have your name published in the newspaper as a person that we don't any longer wish to talk to or integrate. You can't buy things at the store. You can't go to church. You can't go to dances. You're going to be uh, isolated. I'll be back in another week. She's back in another week. And you still say, I'm sorry, I, my mind can't grasp this. I, have, I really still want to, I, I don't want to go one way or the other. I just want to till my fields. Sorry, you can't do that. It's probably a good idea for you to move because in another week, we're going to come and burn your house down. Now, we're not going to kill you. We want you to make sure that, that you know that. That's the kind of pressure that's going on at the ground level every day. And that's the reason the British can't win the war because they can win every battle but once the army leaves, it's like a ship going through the ocean, the wave closes over where they've been. And a patriotic control at the ground level, at the countryside level, remains true throughout the war. And it would have taken a British army of occupation of at least 100,000, and they could have stayed there for 100 years. And, you know, so that's the reason I think the war was unwinnable for the British. Another re reason it sounds familiar to us uh, in contemporary America. Um, uh, uh, when I was when I was uh, writing a book on Washington that you might have read called His Excellency. Oh yes, it took six or seven years to do that. Washington papers are eighty some volumes, but um, um, it was during the early Iraq War, and people wanted to know well what would Washington do about Iraq, and I said being the good historian that I am. Uh, he wouldn't know where Iraq was, and you know, and he wouldn't know about modern warfare. He wouldn't know about all these things. And they said, "Well, suppose you could find a way to inform him, you know, inject him." <laughs> all go, the go and speak to the every, monument somewhere. Yeah. Everything that happened between his death in 1799 and in this moment of 2003 or 4, whatever it was. And I said, "Well, you can't do that." And but they kept pressing me. Yeah. And, so eventually I said, well, what Washington would have said is, how did we become the British? And that's true, I think. I mean, that, that, uh, that it's, the, the cause is inherently anti-imperialistic. And we're the first world power ever to come into existence as a world power that was formerly a nation that achieved its independence by adopting an anti-imperialistic agenda as a former colony. No other country that's we're the first ever to have that happen. So one of the reasons that uh, prolonged occupations of foreign countries doesn't work very well. It's not just because we're as a democracy and the people become tired. It's that it's at odds with the with the mm, genetic structure of the American uh, character to, to be able to support that.
I'm sure you've seen the movie. Of course you've seen it. Um, 1776. Uh, yeah, I saw the Broadway show and I've seen the movie. And at the end of the movie, when they ring the bell in this dramatic moment, the bell right. rings and rings um, as if to say they all understood the enormity of the moment that they had just put down on paper and that they all understood that one day America would be this giant um, imperialistic nation that defined mm -hmm. essentially all of world culture, right? I mean, essentially the United States is felt in right. every country in one way or another. Why didn't, and your argument here is that they had no idea that that was going to be happening. That's um, true. And then Hollywood's well, no, dramatic no, license is one thing. So why didn't that big quill pen moment strike them the way it strikes us? Because like anybody that's participant in a revolution, you don't know what's going on. I mean, it's, it's, it's a traumatic moment and you can't know the future any better than anybody else. Um, there is a moment, just as they send the, the, that supposed moment that the play depicts when um, Benjamin Harrison, representative from Virginia, who's a big fat guy, says to uh, Elbridge Jerry, after whom gerrymandering from Massachusetts eventually, and said, says, I am lucky, Mr. Jerry, because when they come to catch us and hang us, I will die quickly because I'm fat and you will twist in the wind for a long time. Um, I think that's in the movie. I think that's in the 1776 Yeah, I think it's in there, yeah. In the movie, in the movie and the play, they sign on the fourth. There's no such thing on the fourth. They don't <laughs> sign it on the fourth, okay? The only thing they do on the fourth is send it to the printer. And there's a, there's a portrait by Trumbull that hangs in the, the original hangs in the rotunda of the Capitol called the Declaration of Independence. And it shows this group of people that include Jefferson, Franklin, and Adams coming up to a desk where Hancock is sitting, okay? And so all these tourists that go through, and well, insurrection areas nowadays, hmm. um, they look at that and they think that's July 4th, the signing ceremony. It's not July 4th, it's June 28th. It's the day that the committee gives the draft to the full Congress, okay? Nothing happens on the 4th, <laughs> really. Um, they, most of them sign it on August 2nd, but they're signing it into September and October. And what I love about some of them, like especially Robert Morris, Morris is one of the last people to sign, and he's really a hesitant revolutionary. But he, because he's last, he puts his name at the top of the list. He gets to sign it at the top. So it looks like he's the first to sign. Anyway. See, that, that is understanding politics right there. And these guys really understood politics oh, and they yeah. understood how to massage public opinion. So one of the things that I love is that uh, you say there's this concerted effort to make sure that if the war came, the first shot had to be fired by the British. The politics would simply not accept otherwise. They also are able to turn the king into this bumbling fool into like a caricature of a king. Um, how did all that help create an evolution, a series of snowballing moments that you say, as opposed to a revolution, which you say is more of a single violent outburst? Yeah. Uh, the, mm, the context here is that the Americans crossed the Rubicon really in 75 when they uh, resist British occupation of Boston and 
they isolate the British Army in uh, Boston, and they surround them with this group that will come to be the Continental Army, headed by this guy called George Washington. But they have they stop on just on the far side of the Rubicon. They say, "Okay, Great Britain, we don't want to go any further." We do not wish to declare our independence unless we're absolutely forced to. And, uh, and so there is this hiatus. Notice there's a 15 month difference between the time the war breaks out in Lexington Concord and the time we actually declare independence. And so they give the British empire and British king and parliament the opportunity to rethink and instead of rethinking, they doubled down. And, uh, and in the process, they prepare uh, the largest fleet ever to cross the Atlantic with 32,000 soldiers, 10,000 sailors, and about 300 ships. Uh, the, the only time it comes, the next time, the only time a larger fleet crosses the Atlantic is when the American Expeditionary Force goes across in World War I. It's huge force that they're going to use to squash this thing as early as they can. And that's what makes a lot of Americans' minds up uh, in the summer of 1776. Adams writes this resolution, sending it out to all the states saying, okay, we've reached a point where you have to start to decide whether to re redo your own colonial constitutions. And if you're willing to do that, let us know right now. So you've got these responses from all of them you know, 40 some uh, towns in Massachusetts, some, all the counties in Virginia, you can read it. What are people really thinking? Why are they willing to commit to independence after being so resistant? They've trusted that this guy, George III, is on their side. It's pretty clear that he's not now. In fact, he is the worst possible imperialist of all. And that's the reason you get almost a unanimous vote. Yes, yes. What, we have no choice. They're about to come invade us, blow up our cities, rape our women. George III has declared his independence of us. Um, and so that's the reason that brings them all together at that particular moment. The um, popular narrative, and we, and we need to talk about slavery and why, as you say, um, the founders failed to put it on this path to extinction that they had hoped to put it on. The popular narrative is that even the founders who owned slaves were disgusted by the institution itself, but they participated in it because they couldn't justify manumission financially to their own pocketbooks or to their fellow political bigwigs. Um, there were even early indications that, and you say this in the book, that a new society would not have slavery. They eventually have to go back on that for political reasons um, in heartbreaking fashion. Um, and you've written also that it's not honest scholarship to put our morals on a different time period, on people of a different era. You've written that you know, many times. Um, has, have you evolved on that? Um, are we going too easy on them in giving them that out, that we shouldn't be putting our own justification, our own moral mm, on? No, I, I, I think that the, well, I'll say two things that seem to contradict it. The original sin of American history is slavery. No question. And racism is its toxic residue that is still very much with us. Given, stop, period. 
the, the mortal sin of historians is presentism. Our responsibility is to recover the past on its own terms as those participants saw it and as they were shaped by the context of their moment. We can make judgments only after we've done that, okay? Now, in my own particular view, I think you can recover the mentality of the moment and recognize that slavery was and was perceived to be by the vast majority of Americans, including the vast majority of Southern slave owners, including Washington, Jefferson, Madison, um, Patrick Henry, George Mason, they all recognized that slavery was incompatible with the values they claimed to be fighting for and having established in the new United States. They all knew that. We're not imposing that on them, okay? Um, it's going, is slavery a tragedy? Yes. Is it a Greek tragedy or a Shakespearean tragedy? A Greek tragedy is one that's embedded and no amount of leadership is going to change the outcome other than, let's say, three, three million frontal lobotomies. A Shakespearean tragedy means that with a, with a better leadership or more successful leadership, it could have gone the other way. That's where I land, okay? And that means you don't give them a pass, but you do account for what they're up against here, okay? Um, and the major problem they're up against very practically throughout the war and then up to the Constitutional Convention is if you frontally attack slavery and say it is going to be gone, it's and in fact, there is a person who writes in, in uh, I think I mentioned this to you, a house divided against itself cannot stand. That's Lincoln steals that for later on. Um, if you force that during the war, you lose the Carolinas and Georgia for sure, and maybe Virginia. And that means you can't win the war. Would any of them have expected there to be a second war, a civil war to end slavery? They thought about that a lot. Meaning, as, as you get into the 80s, 1780s, and into the 90s, it's pretty clear that there's a sectional split here that's profound. And that in the northern states, they put slavery on the road to extinction, gradual emancipation has happened. But in Virginia and the Carolinas and Georgia, it is embedded. And that's where 90% of the African-American slaves live. Um, in that sense, we're like two societies. Can we live together? Washington says to Jefferson, if it comes to a war, a sectional war, a civil war, he says, know that I will be with the Union. Okay? And uh, now it happens long after he's dead, but that they are aware of this. And the very awareness of that possibility creates a real problem for any leadership that wants to end slavery. Because once you decide you're going to try to do that, 
you put at risk any unity and any national existence that you're hoping to achieve. And remember, we're very much a nation in the, in the making. We create a national government in the Constitution before we're a nation. <laughs> it is a roof without walls, said one historian. And, um, and so throughout this period in the revolution and in the early aftermath, what we're dealing with is the United States is a plural now. People don't say the United States is, they say the United States are, okay? And that any, and one of the, one of the discontents that I'm referring to as the revolution and its discontents is that at the end of the war, we don't have a federal government that's empowered to act decisively on the slavery question. And it's a state-based thing. And that means for sure the Southern states are gonna, not gonna go along. And that's a problem. There's another problem which I have not talked about much in the book, but I hope to write about next. And I might say the problem might be called democracy. If you say is slavery wrong, all the prominent founders and most Americans would say, yes, slave trade is really bad too. That raises the question, however, what happens when you free it? I think that 80 to 90% of the ordinary American whites could not imagine a biracial society. They could imagine ending slavery, but once you end it in the Northern states, it means gradual emancipation in which the blacks are then segregated. They can't serve, they can't vote, they can't serve in juries, they can't serve a militia, they must live in separate neighborhoods. In the steep southern states, Virginia probably, and the Carolinas and Georgia, where the numbers are so much larger, Virginia is 40% African-American, though if you live in the Tidewater, it's 80%. South Carolina, 60% African-American. They cannot possibly imagine a free black population living alongside them in equality, even though that's what the declaration actually says. Um, and they want to simply remove them from the country. Simply is put it wrongly, but that it's what Jefferson calls expatriation. Once they're free, they need to be sent somewhere else. Haiti, Sierra Leone, later is Liberia, but that, uh, and if in some ways, if abolition had succeeded early, the only way it could have worked is if we had reversed the diaspora of the preceding 300 years and sent a majority of the Southern black population to other parts of the, of the world. Lincoln thinks it might be Panama when he's president. Um, so that you gotta understand slavery is one thing. It is a violation of the moral principle, but living together in the same society as equal members of the is something that, um, most Americans couldn't understand. I, looking at the founders, Washington could, could believe in it. Franklin could believe in it. Hamilton couldn't believe it. And all of them took action to encourage that direction. But they were dealing with a government that couldn't make it happen because it was state-based. And they were dealing with a, a population that was unwilling, to, of whites that were unwilling to accept blacks as equal citizens. I've said too much there. No, it's um, 
it's important for all of us to reflect on on how we got to where we got today, and I'm glad we're doing it. Um, well, you know, like when to be a, in a today sense that what we're seeing in the Republican Party and in the states like Texas and Georgia and their attempt to restrict voting, it tells us I didn't I wouldn't have believed this ten years ago that there's a significant portion of the American white population, significant means 30 to 40%, that believes that Martin Luther King's dream is a nightmare. And yet the demographics show that we're becoming an increasingly multiracial society and the moment of triumph, think of when the American Olympic team is walking into Tokyo, okay? Look at all the other teams. We're the only fully biracial, multiracial team in the world. And that's the reason we're going to win. Okay. Um, Notice that for years when you watch the Olympic team walk. Yeah, in. yeah, it's it a is. a beautiful sight. Yeah. Um, when did it become clear that it was going to be a long war? Uh, um, after the battle on Long Island and Manhattan, it's pretty clear. It's easy for us, though, now to look at that document and be like, oh, and then some other stuff happened. The declaration was the big thing. The other stuff just kind of happened. But this was a real protracted, brutal war. And you describe yeah. in your book, tons of people yeah. were killed. And it was, it was yeah. horrific to fight in. And it yeah. was really violent and divided families. Yeah. Like, the, our, our impressions of the American Revolution as a war shaped by artists like Trumbull and uh, Copley and Gilbert Stuart. If we had a Goya, we would think differently. If we had a, what's the name of the guy that is the photographer of the Civil War? Um, uh, if we had photographs. I'm bad with names. Yeah, I, I, me too. I'm getting older and I'm, I can't even remember the starting shortstop for the Red Sox. <laughs> and, um, but uh, uh, Matthew Brady. If we had a Matthew Brady for the revolution, we would think very differently about it. Um, uh, at the conventional level, you have to be able to stand still while the guy next to you is being disemboweled or beheaded. Most of the fighting occurs in, you know, rifle butts and bayonets. The American Revolution on a per capita basis was the bloodiest war in American history, save for the Civil War. Um, and a lot of the casualties that don't even get reported are occurring in the countryside in foraging battles because both armies need food and both armies are dependent on taking the food from the residents wherever they are. You wouldn't want to be living near the Continental Army in, in say, uh, New Jersey or Pennsylvania. Um, uh, and one unit goes through, takes all your stuff, and the next unit comes through and says, did you give that stuff to the other side? And you say, yes, and then they burn your house down. And then they rape the man and they rape the women and they kill the guy. That's what happens on the countryside. There's thousands of those casualties that are never reported, that are you know, buried graves that are lost to nature over the next 10 or 20 years. That's what's happening in the, in the war. And, um, and it is the memory of that that gives this war a kind of power for, the, for a whole generation. And what David Bryan Davis, late great historian of slavery at Yale called, it's a funny phrase, the perishability of revolutionary time. If you lived through this and were a participant 
you never forgot it. It was shaping. It was it was a determining factor, and that this is on the slavery issue very important because you you really internalized the sense that you were fighting um, for a level of equality that that uh, is still going to be hard to enforce. One of the points um, your book makes is that there are two uh, two enduring legacies. Um, one is, I mean, there are many, of course, but two of them you cite. One is an expression of federal power. Is that expressions of federal power were placed on the defensive for essentially the, you know, the, the cause and there on out. The second thing, though, I really want you to focus on here in, the, in this question. Um, you say that conspiracy theories were embraced because they echoed the cause. How and why? Right. One of the, the one of the arguments that the colonists are making against Great Britain is Great Britain is plotting to enslave them. OK, that and um, that's not just a few people that say that this is riddled in the protest literature in the 1760s and 70s. Well, not really. As we said earlier, Great Britain is attempting to consolidate its control over its North American empire. And that means a restriction of the freedom that the colonists have, but not enslavement. They're colonists. Okay. But that when the, uh, when the war is over and you're talking about what kind of government we ought to have, any kind of federal government, national government that has power to make domestic policy is regarded a second plumbing of parliament, a domestic version of parliament, and therefore inherently tyrannical. And, uh, and, and any exercise of executive power is monarchical, okay? So that when Washington comes under question of this when he's president, you know, and um, uh, so that very good patriots like Sam Adams um, really doesn't want uh, the Constitution to, to come into existence in ways that give federal government the power to make domestic or even foreign policy. So there's a, there's a huge, one of the ways to put it that connects to our current situation, is government us or is government them? At the end, for the vast majority of Americans, including some of the most pronounced leaders, government is them. Exceptions to that are the people who are going to become Federalists. Most of these guys served in the Continental Army. Um, they had a national vision because of that. Over, over half, the, about half the people, the delegates to the Constitutional Convention seven years later, are veterans of the Continental Army. Washington is the most pronounced one of those, but Franklin Adams agree with him, uh, so does Hamilton, that we are, we need to become a nation. We need to create a national government that helps that process along. But at the end of the war, Hamilton says, I'm, I'm, I'm giving up public life to make my money because it's be a waste of time. Things are gonna have to get worse before they get better, but I'm sure they will, and we need to be ready for that moment when it arrives. Um, looking back, it is so interesting, and you say this in the book, that we have this strong alliance now with Great Britain. I mean, essentially, I mean, maybe other than Canada, when, the, when there are two nations left standing together, it'll be the United States and Britain, right? Um, uh, is that a coincidence, or was there an intimate relationship that was being forged, even through all that violence? 
there was an intimate relationship. I hadn't thought of it in quite that way, but yes. I mean, um, I mean, I don't think the anybody alive today remembers the 18th century, of course, um, but those mystic chords of memory tend to be very domestic in terms of the people that served in the war, et cetera. I think it's because we speak the same language and because the values of the American constitutional republic do have their origins in English law. Um, it takes England, and England still has a, has a, a queen or a monarch and all that stuff, but that the English Civil War and the Glorious Revolution are the fountainheads for much of the political thought that becomes American political thought. Um, uh, and, um, you know, and, uh, and for more recent Americans, we're the ones that rescued them from Hitler. Uh, and we, there's certain camaraderie in leading the Western alliance against the tyrannies of Germany and later on the Soviet Union. So we've lived, there was this, this burp or this hiccup in 1812 and um, the, the, the Brits think maybe there's one more chance to get us, to get this back and Americans think, ah, oh, this is a chance to get Canada. Um, but we get past that. It's language and ultimate values that we share in common. And I guess, as you point out, World War II was kind of a big deal too. Um, rescuing, rescuing them from Hitler, as you put it. Um, uh, all right, you're not spending much time on Twitter. Uh, I, I don't believe you have an account. Uh, maybe you scroll through once in a while, but I don't. Pre- no, I don't. I don't. Yeah, no. um, but you're aware of it at least. Um, one of the critiques on there is that popular history has outlived its usefulness. And I just want to hear what you think about this because the the critique is it has tended to be written to make middle-aged white males feel good about their country in the end. Despite all of its flaws, the United States is still okay, still bending towards just, uh, towards mm-hmm. justice. Um, how would you, or would you, I'm not sure if you would, would you defend popular history these days? And is it going um, through the evolution that it needs to in order to stay relevant and helpful in our society? I think that the kind of remarks you talked, uh, referring to, are written or uttered by American historians that don't know how to write popular history. And by popular history, I mean history that a large number of ordinary Americans actually read. And um, uh, I don't think that, for example, um, John Meacham or... um, uh, Stacy Schiff are fit the description that, that uh, or that uh, I mean I think that the, the person that they, that I think they want to attack is um, David McCullough, who unfortunately is passing as we speak. Um, there's a certain amount of jealousy um, in the profession, in the academic world in general. Anyone who's bet on envy and jealousy in the American Academy has almost never lost. Um, uh, my say is, why don't you write books that are what you want to say that are re- readable by, uh, are read by a larger audience? The audience is out there for you. Go, go, go get them. Um, and I think that they're attempting to stigmatize anybody that's successful as a person who is uh, shouting some sort of uh, right-wing propaganda. That's not true either. Um, uh, so. I defy them 
you know, meet me on common ground, we'll argue about the revolution, and I'll bet I win. How do you, when you sit down to write a book, how do you keep yourself in the frame of mind to both be academic and make sure you're writing for people like me, who maybe I'm a history buff, but I'm certainly not Mm -hmm. a professional historian. How do you keep that wrestling match in your head to make sure that the book is readable by lots of people? It's not a fight for me. I never knew how to write academies. I was bad in foreign languages. And um, <laughs> and that's one of them. Mark, uh, my mentors at Yale were C. Van Woodward and Edmund Morgan. They were the two great men of their day. And both of them wrote for a larger audience. Uh, both of them. It, you didn't have C-SPAN and you didn't have that. But the, and the more specific answer is, because I taught undergraduates for 44 years, and I decided I didn't want to teach graduate students, and I had opportunities to do that in other universities. I wanted to teach people not because I was preparing them to be historians, I was preparing them to be citizens in a variety of fields, journalism, law, corporate, whatever. And the people sitting in front of me and the people I was talking to and trying to have a dialogue with were really smart. They wanted to learn history and they didn't know very much. That's who I'm writing to. I'm writing to the same people I was teaching. It's not easy. I mean, it's not hard for me to visualize them because there's about seven or 8,000 of them out there in my memory. And uh, some of them still keep talking to me. And, um, <laughs> and uh, uh, it's, um, uh, it, it's natural. I can't imagine doing it any other way. I mean, who just wants to write for 10 other people? What's wrong with you? Um, you, uh, you mentioned earlier on, you want to write another book, your, this will be my next one. Um, I, am I allowed to ask? I know this is the question that many historians or writers can't stand when I ask it, but let me ask, uh, are you planning another book and what do you think it would be the focus yeah. on? It's always good when you can know where you're going to head and land after, before you finish the book you're working on. And, but oftentimes that's not true. And that, when it's not true, it takes two or three years from me. But this time, I'm pretty sure that I know where I'm headed. And um, it's not in this book. It's the, it, you can see it coming a bit in this. But the, the book that I want to work on is called American Tragedy, Why the Founders Failed to End Slavery. And, um, and it's going to be at a general panoramic level, but it's also going to dive deep into specific founders. The biggies, of course, are Washington, Jefferson. Um, Henry Lawrence is one that needs to be recovered a bit. Um, uh, and, uh, and so you'll get into things like denial mechanisms. You'll get into the psychology at a very specific palpable level and also at a more panoramic demographic level. But it gives me, and it gives me opportunity to tell stories. That's what I'm always looking for here. And um, what's a story and what is the story? And when you write, as I've tried to write, your research take your your research produces evidence across a whole table, and about a third of it has to be put aside. Are you if, still opening up new papers and research that you haven't seen yeah, before? Yeah, yeah, of course you got to do that. Yeah. And, um, some of it I've got to go back and read it again. Right, right, right. What I was right. looking for before isn't what I'm looking for now. Um, uh, but I think that. The uh, too many professional historians are reporting on their research. We're not interested in your research. We're interested in the story. 
And you've got to be able to throw the story away. So when someone says, it's, you know, um, when someone says, oh, I've done all the research, all I got to do is write it up. Don't ever read a book that person writes because it's not going to be very good. And it's not a lab report we're doing here. And um, you need to digest this material. What's the story and make it your own. Ed Morgan, my old mentor, it was really simple, really simple. You read the primary sources with your own eyes and you say what it means. And some people can do that and some people can't. Hopefully you'll come on again when you finish that next book. If you invite me, I'm here. Love it. Dr. Joseph J. Ellis, author of The Cause, The American Revolution and Its Discontents, 1773 to 1783. Thanks so much for joining us. Good questions. Certainly check out that book and his website, which is josephjelishistorian.com. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash axelbankhistory. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axel Bank Reports, History, and today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks.